Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll be beginning uh, our look at Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, it's going to take about four episodes for us to get through this 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 book. Uh, it's not the longest thing Lovecraft wrote. I think that's that's the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but it's up there. I think it's the second longest thing he wrote, um, and it's kind of amazing and and kind of frustrating. I think it's, you know, Lovecraft never intended for it to be published. It was more of an experiment in writing longer fiction. Uh, I think a lot of people rather like it. I, I'm not, you know, sure how often it's, it is read by, by more casual Lovecraft fans, but it is something you got to kind of work your way through to uh, fully appreciate uh, his his dream dreamer stories right it is the greatest i guess the, the the most ambitious of the the dreamer tales uh it's got a lot of references to the other dreamland stories so if you do your homework which you should always do and read all the other dreamland stories before this i think you'll get a lot more out of the story in fact there's parts of the story that may be kind of incomprehensible if you're not that familiar with stories like Celephus or uh especially the outer gods or the other gods, sorry, the other gods, um, those two in particular, but there's a few other stories, Cats of Ulthar, of course, that it really helps you to have the background of having read, uh, right? But this is the one that really does all the world building to really give us a full description of, of the dreamlands. And I think one thing that really makes this relevant for what we're trying to do in this, this podcast, or at least what I'm trying to do in this podcast, is what this book let's just call it a novel novella whatever it's basically novel length um what this novel is trying to do in talking about race and talking about the sea uh and of course the you've always had adventures and journeys and the sea has been part of dreamland stories from the beginning all the way back to like the white ship but here he really uh connects some of the things he's trying to do in stories like horror at red hook here i in fact i think this is not a story that could have been written prior to the New York uh, adventure of Lovecraft uh, because it, the way he describes the harbor cities and the maritime cities and the people and the ports and the maritime workers and the, the suspicious folk kind of wandering the, the, some of these cities. This is not something that's very common. Not very, it's not, very, it's not, 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 some, not something you see in the earlier Dreamland tales, um, but it comes off strongly here. So I think, you know, kind of like how Kingsport is Kingsport's also a harbor town, but doesn't have this kind of insidious uh, element. I think Innsmouth too. Innsmouth can't come out prior to his New York adventure. Um, I, I think we can't underestimate how important that experience was, not just in his uh, personal life, but even in how he conceives of his, his stories. So anyways, uh, how to go about this story? Well, I, I, I decided a while ago that I was going to do it in four parts. I'll probably do Case of Charles Dexter Ward in five. I'll probably do uh, Mountains of Madness in maybe four as well. I'm not quite sure until I reread that one. But I, I've known for a while I was going to do this one kind of in four parts, uh, about 25 pages each, because they kind of are stages in the quest. All right. Now... One, I, th I don't know if this is a frustrating thing. When I first read Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath, uh, and I've actually read it three times this year. Um, when I first read it, I, w I just kind of sort of got bored at the, the constant 
kind of he would spend a few pages in one place then he'd go to another place and then some other thing would happen to him and randolph carter would just sort of be bounced around like a ping pong ball to various places and spend a few pages in each and it was very episodal episodic right you know but it would be like it wouldn't be a 12 episode thing if it was on tv it'd be like a 40 episode tv series maybe better for like an anime series or something with a lot of short episodes because there's a lot of places he goes and it's it's kind of hard to keep track of and so in addition to breaking up into four parts because i think there's some i mean just in terms of length it makes some sense to do that but also in terms of of kind of stages in the quest it makes sense the first one i'm going to basically go from the enchanted wood so where where he enters the dreamlands to the rival at uh oreb this island and uh, near the the mountain of Negrath, Negrak, Negrak, Negranik, N G R A N E K. I don't know. I've listened to different audiobooks, different pronunciations for these things. But Negranith, he, he right before he tries to climb this mountain, which is supposed to be a window into his path. It's not. He doesn't think it's going to get him to Kadath, but he thinks it's going to be a. It's going to give him the clues, right? So there's a lot of like you got to go to here to find out this. And but some things happen to you on the way there, and so you have to get back, and, and and all that. That's that's kind of how the story is, and it's very very episodal. So I think it's, and maybe that's why maybe the story itself doesn't have like a real clear feel. Sometimes it's like he's going all over. It's like he's touring the dreamlands, going to all these different places he wants to go, and. Do these different things he wants to do and they're all kind of fun and interesting and wild uh it's it's really great at times but it can sort of drag and that's what i felt the first time i read it and the second time i read it i i, I did it with much more careful note-taking uh, i wrote up my clinger anthology uh with all kinds of side notes but even there i got sort of it became sort of tedious at the end right but this time i read it much more slowly and spaced out um where i would just kind of really do it an episode at a time right if you were to think of this as a series of different episodes i read it more as an episode at a time and and you know and that's how i'm going to sort of present it to you is, is sort of an episode at a time so this episode one uh actually encompasses nine different vignettes if you will nine different stories nine different things that happen to randolph carter in the dreamlands right and i'm going to do that for the next for uh four parts so altogether there's going to be like almost 30 different things that happen to carter 30 different little vignettes little stories side quests uh, that he goes on so that's how i'm going to do it and i'm going to just talk about what i think is interesting about each section as we get through it but it's really really dense this book is dense like every lovecraft story is dense so that's nothing new but it's long and dense so that's a different experience it's one thing to read a five ten page dream one story with a that's packed with a lot of stuff and reading a hundred page uh story that's packed with a lot of stuff anyways um let's jump right into it so the first i guess vignette if you want to call them that let's i'll just that's what i'll call them the first vignette here is dreams of kadath um so we're told right away in the first line that Randolph Carter has three times dreamed of of Kadath. Now, obviously, Randolph Carter, we read the statement of Randolph Carter, we read the silver key. So we're familiar with this guy, right? He's kind of a fill-in for Lovecraft at times. It's There's some debate about how much he's the same character in each of these stories. It's certainly the same name, so that's the best evidence for it. But 
anyways uh that's the name of our hero here he's a dreamer he's obviously a, he's an experienced dreamer by this point of his life he actually knows people like pikmin uh, of pikmin's model he he's met others he's traveled much along this he knows the language of cats he knows a little bit of the language of the zoogs so he's fairly familiar with the dreamlands but um but three times in his dreaming he's dreamed of kadath the perfect city the marvelous city um but he kind of gets to a point where we've all had this experience in dreams right where you get to a point of something you really want to experience or enjoy and um and then as you kind of get excited and focus on that, you get snatched away from that moment, right? The more conscious you are of your dreaming, the harder it is, right? I guess some of you can lucid dream and, you know, great for you, lucky you. But for those of you who can't, when we kind of come aware that we're, we're to this moment of something great, amazing, interesting is going to happen, we somehow become aware that this isn't real and this helps wake us up. It's happened to me all the time. Uh, but so that's what happens to him three times um, and this over a few paragraphs Lovecraft tries to describe this city as he remembers it it's a perfect city it's called the fever of the gods at one point um, it's kind of like how in the white ship there's this goal to try to get to the perfect city but uh, Carter's already been there he's already been in the perfect city and it's just a matter of, of returning of wanting to return uh, a lot here about memory uh, this desire to see it again, this desire to kind of have a, uh, to experience this thing again. And, and of course, we're warned repeatedly by Lovecraft and his works that don't quest too much. Sometimes it's better to forget than to remember. And, and we can debate or question whether that's what Carter should have done. Uh, should have just bypass this whole quest altogether? I'm not sure. Um, there's, but he's kind of bonded. He's kind of predestined almost to go on this quest uh, he, we're told actually that he's he's bounded that there's this line here dreams tyrannous gods uh, that that's kind of suggesting dreaming has kind of seduced him and captivated him and bound him to seek this out um, so after the third visit to Gaddafi he begins to pray to the gods to to uh, take him to Gaddafi Right, and he kind of interprets this as the gods taking Kedath from him. Um, so, in, in fact, yeah, so he, he kind of resolved at this point to go to Kedath and return there to quote, go where no man has gone before, like the Star Trek line here. Um, if I can find it. Here it is. Carter resolved to go with bold entreaty whether no man had gone before and dare the icy deserts through the dark to where unknown Kadath veiled in clouds and crowned with unimaginable stars hold secrets and eternal the onyx castle of the great ones. So he's not only seeking Kadath, he's seeking the gods, the city of the gods. Um, so that's our plot. That's our, that's the setup. It's, it's not much more complicated than that. He dreamed this place. He wants to return to it because the gods seem to take away from him. He can't dream his way there anymore. And he's just seen glimpses of it and he wants to go there. So um, section two, vignette two, uh, he dreams of return to the dreamlands. He's an experienced dreamer, so he can go here when, when he wants, but he can't go to Kadath anymore. So he takes a light, it's actually a light sleep, takes him to sort of the gateway to the dreamlands for at least Carter. Other people go directly. They don't all go through the enchanted wood. 
but he seems to. There's stairs you gotta follow, and then the stairs take you to the Enchanted Wood. But we'll get to the Enchanted Wood in the next section. Uh, for now, he just dreams of return to the Dreamlands. A light sleep takes him there. And he goes to the Cavern of Flame, it's called. And there he talks to priests. And he says, all right, I want to go into the Dreamlands. I want to see Kadath. I want to go there. And the, the priests there say, what are you, crazy? They warn him not to go. He says, no one, uh, no one knows where it is. It may not even be in these Dreamlands. It may not even be on this planet. And it's not really clear whether other dreamers can go to there. There is, there, there is three dreamers that are said to go there. One survived, two other went mad, who tried. So it's dangerous. And then there's the threat of, and here we kind of learn the danger of, of pursuing this, and that is Azathoth. Azathoth, which is, of course, the, 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 the idiot god at the center of the universe, just kind of a mindless uh, god of chaos. Not a real actor, um, like many of the other gods we meet in Lovecraft stories. You know, we start to really meet the great gods at this point in his career. We've already talked about Cthulhu, but we're going to get, um, you know, a lot of other glimpses of these of these great gods acting on Earth in various ways, right? Especially at, at the Mountains of Madness. But at the Mountains of Madness, Cthulhu shot over Innsmouth in a way. Anyways, oh, Dunwich Horror, The Ark of Thoth, and that one. Uh, Case of Charles Dexter Ward is also a Yogg's Thoth story. But Azathoth is always just hinted at in various stories, but he's always like the center of this of this universe and this kind of black area, this, this place without existence. Now, no dreams can reach him. But anyways, despite these warnings against going to Kadath, uh, Randolph Carter says, no, I'm going to commit to go. So they're like, okay, whatever guy, you can go on. And so that leads us to the third vignette, the third part of the story, which is the Enchanted Wood. Um, this is also kind of the land of the Zooks, which are like little squirrel things, I guess, but they're sort of sentient. Um, they... Like, they know the Dreamlands, so he's the, they're like the first ones that Randolph Carter wants to talk to. And he sort of knows the language of the Zoogs. He can talk to cats, too. He's going to kind of go, meow, meow, meow. Some, what, I don't know how he talks to the cats, but he knows the language of cats a little bit. He kind of knows the language of the Zoogs, too, because of his previous dreaming. Uh, now, they're, they're interesting. They're, they're kind of an underground race. Uh, they're kind of secretive. They live low to the ground, but they also know a lot. Um, here's what Lovecraft writes about them. In the tunnels of that twisted wood, whose low prodigious oaks twine groping boughs and shine dim with the phosphorescence of strange fungi, dwell the furtive and secretive Zoogs, who know many obscure secrets of the dream world and a few of the waking world, since the wood at two places touches the land of men, though it would be disastrous to say where. Certain unexplained rumors, events, and vanishment occur among men where the Zooks have access, and as well that they cannot travel far outside the world of dreams, end quote. So they're kind of actors, maybe even in our world. Now, where these two places are, is I wonder. I, I don't think we get any real clue of where that is, you know, but there is connect, there, there's ways to get to the Dreamlands beyond dreaming, apparently. And the Zooks seem to be able to pass over through these kinds of gates. So that's kind of wild. Um, but they, they do occasionally eat dreamers too. They, they're kind of vegetarians, but they sometimes eat people. 
It's kind of weird. But anyways, Carter knows them. And we actually get a reference here to Selephus. I'll mention all the references as far as I noticed them to the other Dream 1 stories. I should catch all of them. Here we get our first kind of clear reference to another Dream 1 story, and this one is Selephus. Because um, Carter... Carter had actually used the Zooks earlier to find Selephus. In Uthnargai, quote, beyond the Tenarian hills, where reigns half the year the great King Coranus, a man who's known by another name in life. Coranus is the one soul who has been to the star gulfs and returned free from madness. Now we know that Coranus is dead on earth. He died and he kind of transported himself through death to the dream ones permanently. I, I forget why he rules only half the year, or is this a new thing Lovecraft adds here? But anyways, so he used the dudes before to find Selephus. But Carter goes to the Zug village, talks with them, meets with them, and he converses. He ends up having a council uh, with the Zug sages. It's like the, the council of the Zug sages is what it's called. And he asks them about Kadath, and they don't know where Kadath is. But one suggests he goes to Ulthar, uh, the same town from the Cats of Ulthar, to consult the Panoptic manuscripts. And here we get our second clear reference to, um, well, this is might be the third, because the Panoptic manuscripts go all the way back to Polaris. Um, but we got a clear reference to the other gods. And because um, we actually get a resuscitation of the story of the, quote, the, there were men who had seen the signs of the gods and even one old priest who'd scaled a great mountain to behold them dancing by moonlight. This is, uh, uh, what's his name, Barzai? Barzai and the Outer Gods. He's the one who climbed the, the, the mountain. So go back and listen to that episode if you don't remember the Other Gods. Um, I mentioned it actually in the Strange High, Home, Strange High House in the Mist episode as well. Um, so he leaves the Enchanted Woods, but it's really kind of creepy how he gets followed by the Zoogs. First, it's like the curious Zoogs seem to follow him openly, but there's also these furtive Zoogs who follow him more secretly. Um, and then he passes this weird stone slab that the Zooks have a taboo against encountering. It's a stone slab with like a, a ring that you knock or something. And the Zooks don't touch it or don't want anything to do with it. Um, and Randolph Carter doesn't really interact with it. But it's kind of a creepy little thing there that, that the Zooks don't, don't even know. Anything else here? Oh, the... Yeah, he starts on the way to Ulthar. He meets people. He meets different like villagers. And this is an interesting reference here. At one house where people were stirring, he asked questions about the gods and whether they danced often upon Lyrian. But the farmer and his wife could only make the elder sign and tell him the way to Nier and Ulthar. So this reference to the elder sign, which, of course, is kind of in the Lovecraft pop culture, especially the games, it's a big thing. It doesn't show up that much in his stories. But it's it's part of the, kind of a part of the Cthulhu mythos that's developed since he died, and in in kind of popular culture about it, this idea of a sign of protection or something. Um, all right, that's the third vignette is the Enchanted Woods. The fourth is Ulthar, and we know a lot about Ulthar from the story, the Cats of Ulthar. Um, so he has to follow this river Sky to Ulthar. Um, and he's still being followed by the Zooks, and they'll follow him until they run into the cats. Now, of course, Ulthar has lots of cats. And here's another reference to one of the stories, obviously the cats of Ulthar. We're reminded that in Ulthar, no man may kill a cat. And so they have a lot of cats in Ulthar. 
And so who does he seek out when he gets to Ulthar? Well, he doesn't go to talk to the cats. The, the cats will make their appearance. They'll have their heroic moments soon enough. But he seeks out and said, Atal. Now, Atal, another reference. This is, again, to the other gods. Atal is the guy who, well, Barzai will climb the mountain to see the other gods. And Atal is the one who lost courage and stayed behind. And he was able to tell the story of what happened to Barzai. So he knows some things. And he studied with Barzai for a long time. So he knows quite a lot, but he didn't ascend the peak um, so he was the one who's closest who's available to Hathlik Kla which is this this um, this mountain I guess he climbs um, so Atal uh, tells Carter of the other gods warns them him basically he everyone's warning him don't do this. Don't go farther. Don't try to seek out the other gods. Don't try to seek out Kadath. It's just going to give you trouble. Warns him against continuing. And he tells literally the story of Barzai the Wise. This guy. And he also says like the panoptic manuscripts that you came to see, they're not going to help you. There's nothing really in them either. Um, and he even says maybe Kadath isn't on this planet. So the same thing that priests tell him essentially is Atal repeats to him that you're not going to find what you want uh, here. Um, so what does Carter do? Well, the Zooks gave him some like what's called moon wine. Basically, it's the Zoog liquor. And uh, Carter starts drinking with Atal and gets him drunk. And so then Atal, sexually, Lovecraft here says, this is a wicked thing to do. You know, he Lovecraft was a teetotaler. He didn't drink. So it's kind of, I kind of laughed out loud when I read that. It's this wicked thing to get him drunk. But Carter gets Atal drunk on the Zook wine. And then he starts to, once he's drunk, he starts to kind of spill the beans about the gods, about different signs. And he says this really weird, interesting stuff. Like, for instance, one is that the other gods seem to pine after human women, like a Greek god, like Zeus or something. Like they actually have the hots for human women. And so you will find hybrids, hybrid people, people who are half god, half, half human. And... They may not know their gods, but you might be able to learn from them, and they might look a little bit weird. So you'll be able to actually tell by looking at them if they're if they're gods or not. Let, let me read this. Um, it is known that in disguise, the younger among the great ones often espouse the daughters of men, so that around the borders of the cold waste wherein stand Kadath, the peasants must all bear their blood. It's like miscegenation, right? It's all the, it's all about racial bloodlines and hereditary again. Even in the dreamlands, we can't escape this aspect of Lovecraft's work. All right, going on. Uh, this being so, the way to find that waste must be to see the stone face on Negrath and mark the features. Then, having noted them with care, to search for such features among the living men. So he says, what you need to do is go to this Negraneth. Negranic, this mountain, which has the stone face of one of these hybrids. You'll be able to know what the hybrids look like. Then you can go seek them out. Then you'll have someone who's half god, half great one. And you'll be able to use them to sort of uh, find Kadath somehow, right? So, so moving on, he, he says, this is all him drunkenly spilling the beans to, to our hero. Much of the great ones might be learned in such regions, and those with their blood might inherit little memories very useful to a seeker. They might not know their parentage, for the gods so dislike to be known among men that none can be found who have seen their face wittingly, a thing which Carter realized even as he sought to scale Kadath. 
but they would have a queer, lofty thoughts misunderstood by their fellows. They would sing of far places and gardens, so unlike any known, even the dreamlands, that common folk would call them fools. Now, Atal doesn't know the way to Negranic. He doesn't know the way to this mountain. It's not the same mountain that, I guess, Barzai the Wise climbed. It's a different one. But it all, both had this kind of carving of the face in it. But he says, uh, you want to follow the river sky farther south, past Ulthar to Dilithalene. So this is the first big city that, that they in, encounter. Um, and so then we get a little bit of like the maritime history of, of the dreamlands. And this is really fascinating stuff for me. I, he, you know, just like New England was a maritime community connected to the world in interesting and, and dangerous ways for Lovecraft. Dilith Lean is one of these. In fact, the Dreamlands as a whole are very, very connected. They're very, very commercial, right? Even Ulthar is connected to Dilith Lean through these caravans. And you have all these different ships coming into Dilith Lean and, and other cities. They're always running into other ships on the way to places. It's very, very busy. It's a busy world. It's very, very mercantile. Kind of does remind me of the 18th century Atlantic in a way. And as we'll see, kind of racially, it's there too. But we get some of this maritime history of the Dreamlands here. Um, you know, quote, there is a great city there, Dilith Lean, but in Ulthar's reputation is bad because of the black three-bank galleys that sailed to it with rubies from no clearly named shore. The traders that come from these galleys to deal with the jewelers are human or nearly so, but the rowers are never beheld, and it's not thought wholesome in Ulthar that merchants should trade with black ships from unknown places whose rowers cannot be exhibited. We'll get into that a little bit later. This is all, um, this is something he repeats several times in, in this part of the, the story, the black ship. Um, now, now we get a little bit of like interesting kind of cat stuff, cat lore. There's a few moments in the first quarter of the story that I noticed that we get significant cat lore. Um, that's, you know, we know Lovecraft loved cats. We know he wrote a story with the conclusion of which is no man may kill a cat. Uh, the, the cats don't show up so much in his story. Um, you know, I guess in the rats in the wall, we get a lot of, we get cat stuff, but here we get a lot of like cat lore, which would have been so fun if Lovecraft had been able to explore a little bit more. He is his cat lore because maybe there's a deeper story there about the world of the cats. But one thing we notice is that there's a war between the cats and the Zoogs. And so the Zoogs that were following him from the Enchanted Wood, they stopped following him when he get, they get to Ulthar because there's too many cats there. But he moves on. But if, Well, he doesn't move on quite yet. He stays at an inn, right? And before, before moving on, and he decides maybe he should stay in Ulthar, right? So now we're getting kind of flashbacks to the white ship where a guy's searching for the ideal city and he stops at different cities on the way. But each time it's kind of like, yeah, maybe this place is okay. Maybe this is be good enough for me but he actually talks about the sweetness of that and he sees the cats and he hears the cats and he hears the cats feeding um and then he we get this cat lore that maybe that the cats have some knowledge like the zooks have knowledge for sure maybe the cats also have some knowledge and even rumors that the cats can travel to the moon that's going to be important in a, in a little bit so that's our story of ulthar so that's our, our fourth vignette, if you're, you know, if we're keeping track. Then we get what we'll call the journey to Dilithlene. It'll be the journey to Dilithlene and his experiences in Dilithlene is the fifth, I guess, vignette.
Someone else might divide this up differently than me, which is fine, but this is just helping me kind of see it as a series of, of little episodes. Um, so the journey to Dilithlene, he, he follows a caravan, which is carrying wool from Ulthar to Dilithlene. It takes seven days. And when he gets there, the major feature of Dilithlene is its maritime nature. Um, we have sea taverns, we have immigrants, strong immigrant communities. In fact, let's read a little bit about these, these, these sailors. It's not even immigrants, really sailors. But it's awash with these sailors of, uh, from all over the dreamlands. And some of them are kind of weird. They dress differently, sound different, speak different languages. There's one group, though, that's really seen as kind of really nasty. But uh, here's what he writes. There are many dismal sea taverns near the myriad wharfs, and all the town is thronged with strange seamen of every land on earth and of a few which are said to be not on earth. Carter questioned the oddly-robed men of that city about the peak of Nagrath on the island of Oriap and found that they knew of it well. Ships came from Baharna on that island. So we kind of know where he needs to go next. He needs to get another ship and go to this island of Orbeth. So he finds that, but... Um, but no one can really tell the details about this face of this god on the, on the mountain, which is supposed to have the features that he's able to identify in other people. But we get all these other kind of fascinating maritime stories. And the biggest one, the most powerful one, are, are these black galleys. Um, why are they so weird? Well, one is that they're, they don't see the sailors. Normally a ship gets to port, the sailors leave, they get their shore pay, pay. They spend it all at inns and taverns and, and relaxing. And then they come, when they run out of money, they go back to the ship or whatever. The sailors on these black galleries don't. So they're apparently not even purely human. They're not even really fully human. They're actually called several times in this novel, kind of almost human or quasi-human, something like that. Um, and it's actually, people notice this because they, it's even said it's not fair to tavern keepers to have ships just stay in the port because that's how they make their money as, as these sailors come in. Um, but these unseen sailors, that's what's so weird. They also, but they bring in the rubies. They're the only ones who can bring in rubies, but they also um, have these, they're also slave traders. Quote, the merchants took only gold and stout black slaves from park across the river. So Dilathlene is a slave city as well. And I, I think we can get to some of the slavery issue later on. But overall, uh, in addition to this strange crew trading in rubies and slaves, um, we'll leave this bad taste uh, in the mouth of, of, of those who tell these stories. Overall, though, Dilithlene is a very cosmopolitan city. He actually uses the word cosmopolitan folk for that. So it's kind of an interesting episode in the, in the story where he's just sort of sitting around and... Asking about Kadath, talking to people, and you get all these different rumors. I love this stuff, actually. I think it's really fun. Um, maybe just because I like to sit around at pubs myself and, 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 and hopefully talk to people and tell stories, make up stories. Um, but anyway, the Black Galley arrives. It's been referenced several times already in the story in just a few pages. And the whole city of Dilithlene becomes very anxious about this. Um, he sees the strange merchants. He sees the black men of Parg, the slaves. Um, but he they can't see the crew, right? Um, it's already been established. They don't get off the boat. They actually bring food to them, I think, but they don't get off the boat. 
Now, one merchant does get off, though. The merchants get out, and he approaches him and starts asking him questions. So for the first time, Carter is the one receiving questions. Usually, he's the one asking. He's asking everyone, have you seen Kadath? Have you been to Kadath? You know, he's asking everyone this. But this is the first time he gets asked questions. And uh, Carter has a little bit of this moon wine that he got a tall drunk off of. He has a little bit of it last. So he gives that to the captain but that, or the merchant. And then the merchant says, no, no, you got to try this good stuff. And gives him a little bit of wine. And it's in a ruby bottle. It's kind of fascinating. Fascinating like a carved ruby bottle. Pours him a little bit of this. And he immediately passes out. But first, as he's passing out, he sees something horrific about this guy who drugged him. Which is uh, kind of subtle. Let's see if I can find it. Um, as Carter slipped into blackness, the last thing he saw was that dark, odious face convulsed with evil laughter and something quite unspeakable where one of the two frontal puffs from that orange turban became disarranged with the shakings of that epileptic mirth. So it's a little bit subtle what he's seen, but it's some kind of change or some kind of reality about this captain is revealed. So that's the story of, of Dilithleen. Um, the next kind of vignette we get is, is him kidnapped. Poor Carter is kidnapped. He wakes up, he's on the ship. And we actually get a reference here to the white ship, uh, the, the short story, the white ship. Here, though, the lighthouse keeper is in Kingsport. In the original story, it's, it's not. I think it's a real place. But uh, Lovecraft is retconning it to make it a Kingsport town, which I'm totally fine with. Uh, it sounds right to me that that he's from Kingsport, um, which he just wrote a story about called Strange High House on the Mist. So fine. Total legitimate retcon, I think. Uh, makes it gives it gives the white ship a little bit more meaning. It connects it more firmly to the dreamlands in this way. So I'm cool with it. But then he recounts the, the voyage, the different cities he actually went to in that story. So a recounting of the travels. Now. What's the destination of this ship? Well, um, well, here's here's what we get about this. They're sailing on. Quote, past all these gorgeous lands in Medora, the Medora ship flew unwholesomely, urged by the abnormal strokes of these unseen rowers below. And before the day was done, Carter saw that the steersman could have no other goal other than the basalt pillars of the west, beyond which simple folks say splendid Cathuria lies. So that's where he thinks they're going. But I didn't talk about the rowing because another strange thing about these black galleys is the way they row is like too fast and it's like out of time somehow. Like their rowing is a bit odd. And later on, we learn these ships can sort of fly and that may account for that oddness of it. Um, but he starts to realize that he's going to be taken to Azathoth, to the, like this blackness um, area kind of beyond existence with Azathoth and Nyla Othotep. Um, but no one's going to really tell him the details of, of what's up. But he's pretty clear that he's going to be sent to Nyarlathotep. Nyarlathotep, however it's pronounced. Who, we, of course, we met in the story by the same name. Um, obviously, one of Lovecraft's most well-developed gods. Um, the child of Azathoth, as I recall. Um, but here's what's really key, and here's a, a flashback to the Call of Cthulhu, is the question is, why do these people work for these gods? It seems really a stupid thing to do, because um, they, they want to destroy the world and do all kinds of horrible things. Why work for them? 
And this Carter kind of asks the same question here. Um, now, we don't get clearly told. We get there's a nameless bounty uh, is mentioned one time. What else do we have? Favor of their hideous soul and messenger, the crawling chaos, Nyla Othotep. So very vague. Now we know from the Call of Cthulhu, the promise is more is more clearly explained there. Remember, it's kind of worldly happiness. Um, and maybe the promise is similar here. I don't know. But there's some kind of relationship between him and these black galleys and the sailors on the black galleys. They give him some strange food. Right? You know, some kind of maybe cannibal stuff. I don't know. Um, but the galley eventually goes into space and takes off and, and flies into space. And in, in his journey through to, through space, he sees these like uh, what, what he calls the larvae, what Lovecraft calls the larvae of the other gods. Um, quote, never before had he known what shapeless black things lurk and caper and flounder all through that ether, leering and grinning at such voyages as may pass and sometimes feeling about with slimy paws when some moving object excites to curiosity. These are the nameless larvae of the other gods. And like them are blind and without mind and possessed of singular hungers and thirsts. So that's really wild um, that there seems to be a, a nursery of the gods out in space. Then we get to chapter seven, or not again, vignette seven. These aren't chapters to, to kind of what I'm seeing as kind of part seven of the story, which is uh, to the moon. On the moon. Now they go to the dark side of the moon. They don't go to the light side of the moon. So it's all dark. It's constantly dark. Remember the moon's in this certain kind of orbit around the earth that I think it rotates. Its rotation period is the same as its revolution period, right? Is that? I think that's how it works. So it, it there's a side that's always dark. Um, but they go to this dark side of the moon. And there's actually like cities and life and homes on there. There's even like these houses that look like igloos, the huts of the Eskimo, he calls them. We get this whole moon scenery. It it's, doesn't look like the moon at all. It's got trees and people and cities and all that kind of stuff. But whatever. It's the Dreamland's moon. Anything goes, right? On the dark side of the moon. Um, how's it, what does he say here? As the coast drew nearer and the hideous stench of that city grew stronger, he saw upon the jagged hills many forests, some of whose trees he recognized as akin to the solitary moon tree of the enchanted woods of earth, and whose sap the small brown zooks ferment their peculiar wine. End quote. So the, the, the moon wine comes from just one tree in the enchanted woods. That's good to know, I guess. Anyways, they approach this city, and then they meet the, Des, the Denzians of this city, you of course got these quasi-human people who are these sailors on the black galleys. Um, there's also like human-like slaves, quote, and now and then one would appear driving a herd of crumping slaves, which indeed were approximate human beings with wide mouths like those merchants who traded in dilithuene. So these are the same types of people, but they're all kind of presented as slaves. And who are they slaves of? Well, they're slaves of these moon creatures, moon beasts. Um, and they're described as great grayish white slippery things which could expand and contract at will and whose principal shape though it often changed was that of a sort of toad without any eyes but a curiously vibrating mass of short pink tentacles on the end of its blunt vague snout so i'll let your imagination go with that um so those are the moon beasts and we get a lot here about slavery this is a slave society clearly um a whole paragraph talking about the how these quasi-humans these 
pseudo-humans are slaves of of the moon things. I mean, you kind of, you, you, you can't help but think of At the Mountains of Madness here, which has this same very elaborate system of slavery and servitude in the backdrop of, of that story. Um, now, in quote, and Carter saw the almost human creatures were reserved for the more ignominious kinds of servitude, which required no strength, such as steering and cooking, fetching and carrying and bargaining with men on earth or other planets where they traded. These creatures must have been convenient on earth for they were truly not unlike men when dressed and carefully shod and turbaned and could haggle at the shops of men without embarrassment or curious explanations. End quote. You know, it's almost like if you read Stephen King, it's like the low men, right? That they sort of can pass as human, but they're not quite human. But you put a little clothes on them, you put them in a trench coat and a mask, and sunglasses. They, they color pass as human. But anyone who kind of watches with any attention see something's up so this is a lot of fun um but then carter gets kind of thrown in a jail and very quickly he begins to lose himself he loses time place it's dark constantly there's strange odor the whole city stinks um but after some time after a few days carter's finally taken out of the street at nighttime and there's this like a tiki torch procession almost uh that he's in the center of I guess they're taking him to Azathoth. That's what seems he's going to be sacrificed or something to Azathoth. He's in the center. There are f five of the toad things in front of him, five of these toad things behind him, and 24 humans of these, or these almost humans, around him. And he's at the center, so he can't get away. He can't escape. And he starts hearing this piping sound, which is a symbol of, of Azathoth, as I, I think. These, these piping sounds, this flute sounds. This is always a sign of Azathoth or the other gods. Um, now, the cats, remember, have this means of getting to the moon. It was hinted at earlier in the story. And so they save the day. And this large army of cats just appears on the dark side of the moon. They have some sort of way of getting there. And they save him. And we get this great battle where the cats just overwhelm the moon things. The humans slaughter a bunch of them. It's pretty bloody, gross stuff. We actually see how these moon beasts die. And they, they're like this ooze flows out of them as they're injured. But this huge army of cats just come in to save the day, like in a, like in a, like in an action movie or an adventure movie, saves the day at the last moment. And it's wild. It's fun. It's it's great. I'm so glad this exists in literature. <laughs> I mean, it's so much imagination going on here. It's it's really beautiful. I, I think that's what. I, although this book frustrates me sometimes. I say, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of glad this exists just because it's so much fun to see the, the cats come and slaughter all the almost humans and all that. We get a little bit more cat lore here, too. Like, uh, what kind of things here? Uh, that there's cats on Saturn, for instance. That's a good cat lore. Carter can speak the cat language, so he's able to talk to them. Anyways, there's a lot of cool stuff here, and eventually the cats transport him through their way. I think it's almost like they jump from the moon to Earth, to the or to the dreamlands. This is the dreamland moon to the dreamlands Earth. They sort of kind of can jump, and they take Carter through him, through their, or they take Carter with them to back to Dilithlene. That's where they return him to. So that's the moon adventure, and it's really wonderful. Then we got... Uh, 
I guess, vignette eight, which I'm going to call Dilith Lean to Oriup, uh, to, to the island of Oriup. So he, he kind of goes back to this maritime town, returns to the inn at Dilith Lean. He finds he's been gone a week. So he's got to wait, I think, two more weeks or 10 days or fortnight, I guess. So it's, it's like a couple more weeks for the ship that's going to Oriab to leave. It takes a whole week for the ship to arrive, and then it's going to be some time after that for it to leave again. Um, but he's now the one telling stories. Usually he was consuming stories, but now he's telling stories of the black galleys for all the interested people because he was kidnapped, of course, and he went to the moon, and the cat saved the day. So he tells this story to all the captivated audiences of sailors and other suspicious people in Dilith Lean. The ship finally arrives, and compared to the black... Um, Compared to the black galleys, these are considered called wholesome men. Quote, Carter was glad to see that she was a bark of wholesome men with painted sides and yellow lateen sails and a great captain in silken robes. So a very subtle suggestion of race. These are the good people. They're not the weird, almost human people on the black galleys. I mean, there's obviously strong racial components to this part of the story. Um, I mean... I guess it's all fantasy, so you shouldn't take it too seriously, but him kind of dehumanizing these people on the black alleys, making them slaves. It's hard not to think he's getting pretty close to some pretty strong racism there, but since it's set in a fantasy world, you kind of um, can kind of separate yourself from it, but it is what it is. Um, so Carter is able to then arrange passage on the ship. Um, and he asks the captain about Nagrath. Now, he doesn't really know much about Nagareth, this mountain. He, he, he knows more this town of Baharna. That's like the, where they go to do the trading. And he doesn't really know much about this, this um, hill or this mountain. But he does warn him about the Night Gaunts. And this is our first reference, I think, in all of Lovecraft's fiction to the Night Gaunts. These are dream creatures. I think Lovecraft literally dreamed the Night Gaunts himself and, and introduced them into his story. Now, interestingly, they're referred to as cattle at one point in the story. Um, and sometimes they're useful, sometimes they're seen as a threat. So it's a little bit later in the story that, and it'll be a future episode, where we get a closer look at the Night Gaunts themselves. Carter also obviously asks the captain about Kadath, and he knows nothing about Kadath. So their travel begins. He gets on the ship. Um, and they they travel and they after a little while they pass through this area of the sea where there's this sunken city and it's pretty much it's it can't really be the temple from the story of the temple but it's a lot a lot like that in that you have these dolphins and porpoises swimming around it now in the temple it's, it's atlantis right and those dolphins i guess are the descendants or the ghosts or of the or the actual atlanteans transformed into these sea mammals but you got these same kind of dolphin men swimming around this he sees this atlantis and it's a huge city it takes them a long time to pass and the sailors are blanching um fearfully as they pass this sunken city they see bodies and stuff it's really creepy stuff um kind of i guess it kind of it's almost a memory of i guess it's the tolkien with the the, the marshes that that frodo and sam go through same kind of feel of a, of a dead city that they're you know, here it's 
there was that was a battlefield, right? The marshes and Lord of the Rings, but same kind of that you're traveling over, and there's all these ghosts of of, of all these countless dead. Um, they finally pass it. Everyone feels a little bit better, and he meets. Uh, they meet a ship bound for this other land called Zar, but not much happens there with this meeting. And eventually, they soon arrive at Oriup in the city of Barharna. So that takes me to the last uh, vignette, the last section of this story that I want to talk about today, and that is Barharna. Uh, Barharna, at least up into, and then his his approaching Nagareth, Nagranith. I'll find a consistent way to pronounce that soon enough. Hopefully by next episode. Um, but it's another harbor city. The captain, he spends the night with the captain and, you know, or a dinner with the captain, I should say, uh, and, and his wife. But the captain soon leaves for his next adventure. Um, but Carter stays at a tavern and he comes to making his plans to climb Negranic. Picks up more stories, always picking up stories in these harbor cities. It, it almost, uh, we can expect that whenever he's in one of these, these cities, he asks around just like in a, in a, in a role-playing game, you know, whenever you go to a town, you got to ask around at the taverns. It's what Carter does. Maybe this, maybe this, this D&D trope started with, with Lovecraft. Who knows? Now, this is wild. He hires his zebra. Um, and he's going to use the zebra to travel to Negrath. Not a horse, not a pony, not a donkey. He hires a zebra, which in our world, they were never domesticated to be used as beast burden. It's a dreamland, so well, of course you can have a, you can hire a zebra, a tame zebra. So he eventually he was warned by these. I think they're like these. They're called lava lava gatherers. So there's all these people living on the side of this mountain, Nagranith. They're called lava gatherers, and I guess they just they literally take up those old volcanic rocks and stuff and sell them obsidian or whatever. Anyways, they're called lava gatherers, and they have their own kind of communities on the outskirts of Baharna. They're kind of working class folks, but they have, of course, their own stories and legends and warnings and all this. But they, I think he's told, don't, don't sleep near these ruins. And Carter stupidly says, these are nice ruins. I'm going to sleep here, camp here. He wakes up and his zebra is dead. Killed by a night gaunt, he thinks, but its blood's been drained. It's not really clear. There's a couple pages where Lovecraft dwells on the mystery of the zebra. Uh, he actually tries to solve it. You know, he feels loyal enough to the zebra that he hired, guilty enough that he tries to find out how he died. He eventually talks to these lava gatherers, stays in their camp for a day or two. Um, we actually get the whole history of these hill people, which is kind of interesting world building going on here. So much world building. It's a pity, like, I'm sure other writers have built off of this since this, but it's kind of a pity Lovecraft never really goes back to the Dreamlands after Unknown Kadath. It's just not, not it's never interests him again. He kind of is tangential to them, some of the other stories, but, you know, this is this is the last we get of this world, and it's, it's, it's so much more well-developed than it was in the other earlier tales that even we have the history of the lava gatherers who live on this island. Um, but anyways... He eventually gets to this mountain. Now, here's an interesting choice. There's a temple, and the temple has a path going down. And then there's the, the way up uh, the mountain, and he chooses to go up. And that is a good 
place to leave off. I think that's, you know, it's a bit arbitrary where I'm splitting up these episodes. Four episodes, I think, is a good bulk to 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 look at. 25 pages or so. Um, you know, I guess my main podcast is 100 pages at a time. So I would have done, if this was in my main podcast, I would have done Kadath in one one episode. But here I'm doing it in four because I want to get I want to get in a little bit more detail if I can with the Lovecraft stuff, be a little bit more complete, just like I did with the Philip Dick series. Um, but it also is kind of like a nice stage of the quest. It's early on in his quest he found out about this mountain and he spends a lot of time trying to get there. He finally gets there. So what happens when he climbs the mountain is something you're gonna have to see in the next episode, as I cover the next about 25 pages or so of this. Of this book, the next second quarter of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. So, um, I guess I'll hold off on my overall feelings about this book. I think it is a, a sort of a must-read, but it, it, I can understand why for many people, and even for me, it's a bit of a frustrating read at times. But it's growing on me. But as I said, I've read it three times this year, um, and and I've kind of liked it better each time I've read it. It really grows on me. Um, but it is a story you kind of have to spend the time with and, and take careful notes and pay attention to. You can't read it very too casually, like maybe some writers. Um, but it may not be for everyone. I like, I, I'm enjoying it now, though. So, yeah, I guess I'll leave you with that. If you have any thoughts about this part of Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, let me know. I'm most interested in, I guess, the maritime elements of the story. More than I am kind of the God stuff. That's not as interesting for me as this, the world that we inhabit here in the Dreamlands and how he puts it all these other stories together in interesting ways. Um, that's maybe not as big a part of the later parts of the story, but we get other cool stuff. You know, the ghouls show up, for instance. And, um, I think we, we see more cats and moon beasts and, and, and you know. A lot of interesting stuff coming up in the second three quarters of this book, but we'll talk about that starting next time. So I hope you'll join me as uh, we continue on our dream, on our dream quest with, with Randolph Carter. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.